Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. My guest is Jan Hunter, who is the director of a Lorraine Hansberry Theater production of Intimate Apparel by Lynn Nottage, which plays at the Magic Theater in San Francisco April 1st through April 16th. For more information, you can go to lhtsf.org. Jan Hunter has been an actor and director in both the San Francisco and Los Angeles areas and has spent 30 years as the director of the Performing Arts Academy at Skyline High School in Oakland. Most recently, she performed in the cast of Interlude at New Conservatory Theater Center in San Francisco. Jan Hunter, Intimate Apparel was supposed to open two years ago, and you were in rehearsals, and it shut down. How did you get involved in the project? I've been working with Lorraine Hansberry for some time. The play Intimate Apparel by Lynn Nottage was selected for the season. And so I was asked to direct it and with much excitement. It's a wonderful script, wonderful cast. The story is amazing. So I considered it quite an honor. So we cast the show. I have an incredible cast of actors. We worked weeks and weeks and pulled it together. We were going to perform at the Burial Clay Theater. And the Saturday before we opened that Wednesday, we were doing a cue to cue and had gotten to the second act. And then the marshals came to the door and said, um, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to get out of here. And I thought, oh, no, no, that's not possible. We open in four days. And the gentleman looked at me and said, well, ma'am, you don't have to go home, but you have to get out of here. The mayor has shut down all of the ballets, the operas, the theaters in the space, and you have to go. So we panicked, but immediately started grabbing props and costumes and shoving them in containers and dashing them in our cars, all believing we'll be back in a week or two. We'll miss opening, but we're definitely going to be back. We just never fathomed that it, it would be two years later. So we all got together after they put us out and we kind of said goodbye. And I went home and cried for two days. <laughs> but uh, I was very, very pleased to find that Margot had decided that she wanted to put Intimate Apparel back on the season for 2022. And things got better. And then Omicron hit. And then we were like, oh, no, not again. But things kind of calmed down. We had slated for this time to do pre-production in February and rehearsals in March. And we open on April the 1st and the show will run until the 16th. You know, we've been blessed to get a chance to do round two. And I also am very happy that I've gotten most of my original cast. We did have to recast two character parts, the part of George and the part of Mr. Marks. And I have two amazing actors, Bay Area artists who are very, very good. And I'm very pleased with the cast and, and what we've put together. Originally, the artistic director contacted you to do Intimate Apparel two years ago. The artistic director at that time was Daryl V. Jones. 
you'd worked with them before or not? The Bay Area artist community is not very, very large. And I have been a director for quite some time. I've worked with Daryl over 20 years. I've gone to shows that he's done. He's come and supported shows that I've directed at Skyline. And he was at Cal State East Bay. I did very large productions. And he would bring his students to see our shows musicals and straight dramas. And I would take my students to the university to see shows that his students were doing as well. And we did writing projects. We did internship projects and things. And it was, it was quite collaborative. When you're moving from one theater to another, number one, at Skyline, you were able to put on large productions with large casts because high school. No. When you are in a high school, there is no given that you can do large productions. Oftentimes, the person who does the drama productions might be an English teacher. She may not have a facility and availability of the things that you need to put on a large production. At Skyline, we had a performing arts academy where kids actually came to that school, auditioned to be in that particular department to do just that, to to hone their craft in music or vocal music, instrumental music, technical theater, drama, or dance. And so we did have a a, a nice facility, but we also had Tom Hanks, who was a graduate, who was very supportive of his high school. And he and I established a relationship and he was very, very supportive financially. And then once people find out that he's giving, they want to give. So with the space itself was nice, but we did a fundraiser and we were able to pull in a lot of money. So we got fine equipment. So our fly system and a sound system and dressing rooms and trap doors and the, uh, and, and professional microphones and, and lighting. Some of our equipment was better than some of the theaters here in the Bay Area. But what that means is that at Skyline, you were able to put on large productions. Yes. You had a big stage. And then moving into the smaller theaters, the professional theaters in the Bay Area, it's somewhat different, and you've got to scale back on some level. Yes. Is there a different strategy that you would use as a director, or is it just kind of like, oh, it's a smaller set? The smallness of the set or the smallness of the space cannot encumber the work that's being done. Theater and art is art. It is what it is. So actors are going to bring the same level of power to the stage, be it a chasm or if it is minuscule. Yes, you have to make some adjustments on sound, perhaps. And if facilities are different, you make those adjustments too. But that's a part of being a professional. You you adapt to your environment. When it was at The previous theater, was that also a a thrust stage like the Magic? No, it was a smaller stage, but it was proscenium with a fly system and with wings and offstage. At Magic, their audience would be able to see from three different sides. And there aren't wings, but we have made accommodations with the blocking and the direction. So it's it's going to work just fine. Was that kind of like the first thing? You walk into the, to the new space and you go, hmm, I remember how we did it last time. Every production is a new experience. Oh, really? No, I, I saw this as a new cast, 
new timing and a new space. So we work with what we've got and you want to bring something fresh and new every time you come to the stage. Jan Hunter, let's talk for a second about Intimate Apparel by Lynn Nottage. When you decided to do it, something attracted you to the play. What are the themes of the play that you see and do you as a director try to emphasize those themes? The play is about the power of survival and strength. And I was attracted by this story because of this strong woman in 1905 who makes her way to New York City and who hones a craft and she's gifted with her hands. And there's some things that happen just like all of us in our life that that cause us uh, a little trauma, a little heartbreak, but she doesn't give up. She keeps her head up. She's strong. Her relationships are strong with the people that are in the play and she gets heartbroken. And as we often do in this life, but her strength, that's what drew me to it. When you're working on a play, you take notes. I mean, you even have notes for this interview. What kind of notes are you taking when you're looking through the script the first time? I'm looking at where they're going to be, how they're going to make the best usage of the area that that particular scene is going to be done. How do I make it come alive? How do I uh, make sure that the audience uh, is drawn into the story as the story is being told in that particular space. That's something that it concerns me. I'm always thinking about how the audience can see, how they can hear, and what they get back. In terms of the three sides, yes. I've spoken with Loretta Greco about this, and I've spoken with the artistic directors of Aurora, who also have similar issues in making sure that three sides are heard. Yes. How do you try to accomplish that, Jan Hunter? By making sure that the delivery of each character is three-sided. I try to make sure that I direct them so that they're turning and that they're moving and that they're using the stage effectively so that the audience is not seeing back. They can see face and they can see body and that the interaction kind of moves around on the stage. Does that mean that you are, say, for particular scenes, moving yourself from one part of the audience to another? In my mind. But as a director, I, I'm I'm proceeding. I'm in front of them. But I have to think about all sides, including the upstage back part of the state. I have to keep that in mind at all times. Well, when you do a table read, the first table read, what are you looking for then? Of course, it's for intimate apparel, but it's for all of your shows. I'm looking for connection. I'm looking for the voice of that actor that brings forth character. I'm looking to see if I can make any adjustments. They they may come with a little bit of it, but I think that they are flexible and they're able to take direction and maybe give me a little bit more or pull back a little bit. Listening for characterization and to see if there is a connection with those people who are at the table read. The reason I'm asking these questions, which I don't necessarily ask other directors, is because you've spent so many years directing not only that, but because you're directing high school kids, mm -hmm. 
it becomes more important for you because they're not necessarily going to be internalizing a lot of this material like professionals will. It's not necessarily true. I was blessed to be able to work with kids who were really serious about their acting career. And the project that I worked on was moving children, young people who were interested in performing arts as a career into a professional mode, not just as something fun to do in high school. That was not the program that I was working with. These kids were there because they wanted to do this. They wanted to be prepared for college. They wanted to be prepared for professional theater. The usage of professional microphones and a professional grand drape and a professional dressing room and costumes and lighting. And then doing work. I mean, we I've done everything from Hamlet to Greece or from Rent, musicals and serious dramas and murder mysteries and a variety of different styles. But just because they're young people does not mean that they're not coming to the table with an attitude and a desire to want to be professional. My premise was always just come and be ready and try. I can get you where you need to be. And when you're working with professionals, do you feel it's the same in a way? No. When you're dealing with adults, uh, of course it's going to be different. And adults have different experiences prior to coming to that situation. So sometimes it's baggage and sometimes it's uh, an eagerness, just like the young people, an eagerness to just want to do better. Every project is different and every project comes with its issues to deal with. When you're talking about a play that some of the actors have done two years earlier, do you have to sort of convince them to unlearn a little bit because now they're working with different people or doesn't it even work like that? Not necessarily. I don't have to teach them, talk to them, or even remind them to unlearn. They come with a level of freshness. They approach the script with a level of freshness, not, oh, we've done this before. Oh, I remember that. No, that that, that conversation doesn't come up other than you know, maybe once or twice, I remember we exited this way, or I remember I sat here at this time, but we're trying to make sure that this project has a level of freshness and newness and not just repeating what was done prior to. Jan Hunter, for you as a director, do you think it's better or worse to have seen prior productions of shows? Do you mean the same show or just same in show. general? Yeah. Oh, well... I don't think it's worse. I think that every time you experience a stage production, you learn things. You learn different ideas. You learn different deliveries. You, you, you experience different timing. And that's always good. Learning is always good. Now, what you do with it makes a difference. I would never go and see a show and say, oh, that was great. And then try and duplicate that in something that I was doing. It's just, uh, I wish most times that I could sit and enjoy a play like a regular audience member. But because I'm a director, when I go to see plays, I'm always looking at everything. I'm looking at the lighting. I'm looking at the costumes. I'm looking at the timing. I'm looking at how they they use things on the stage. I'm looking at the set pieces. I'm looking at the audience reaction. And if I could just sit back and just enjoy it, I'm sure I w- it would be easier. But it is who I am and it's how I do. And I think 
it's always a good thing to just learn new things. Have you ever been working on something and you go to see it or know you're going to work on something and you've read the script a few times and then you see it and it's not that you're going to duplicate, but you kind of go, aha, I see they did something here that I didn't necessarily catch. Wow. Does that ever happen? Yeah, yeah. For 15 years, I took my students to New York City every year for a week. One show we saw was Beauty and the Beast, and I was really interested in how they were going to accomplish turning the beast into the prince. And my students had done some scenes from that script because, you know, it's fun. But watching how technically they did the spin and the smoke and the clothing coming off and the new clothing. That was very interesting to me. And I thought, wow, I'd like to do something like that. Once I did The Wiz, I had a wonderful set designer who built a hot air balloon that actually floated off stage. Well, I'd seen The Wiz in New York. And of course, you know, we don't have that kind of money. <laughs> but so you, 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 you get ideas and think, well, how could I scale it back affordably, but to do something similar that would be as effective and engaging for my audience. And I was very pleased at how we were able to use our fly system and the front and back of a hot air balloon and have it fly off stage and have the audience really drawn into, wow, there goes, you know, the whiz flying off, but got those ideas from observing something else on a grander scale. Thinking back all those years, is there any particular show beside the whiz that you kind of went, wow, I can't believe we did it. That works so beautifully. Rent. And across the universe, Rent was outstanding, and the set was so fabulous, and the voices were wonderful, and I was very, very pleased. We made a lot of money on that, but there's a show called uh, Across the Universe, which actually is all of the Beatles music. Based on the Julie Tamer film. Yes, yeah. and my son uh, was in New York at the time. He's an amazing choreographer and designer. He came in, and he staged, uh, he did the choreography for me. And we had a great set. The music was wonderful. And what what was exciting was that people loved the music so much. And my audience, people came back three and four times to see that one show. And that just made me feel great. You know, that they were like, oh, they were all involved. They came in Beatles t-shirts and, and they sang in the audience uh, with it. And that was just fun. That was fun and exciting. I see a lot of shows. And I talk to people who see shows. I have this idea that I do, but it's completely different than what other, a lot of other people do, which is I want to walk into a show cold. Mm -hmm. And some people walk in and they do all the research. Which version do you think about? I love to go and be excited and just be surprised. I just went to see Swept Away. I knew nothing about the script and I enjoyed it. And I went to see um, The okay. Kind Ones. Oh. I didn't know anything about the storyline at all, but I enjoyed the play. Quite often, I do like to go and see theater and not know what the storyline is about. I'm going to see 
the actors. I'm going to see how they put the story together. I'm going to see that whole presentation. And I don't have to do, I don't think, uh, no, I don't enjoy like, let me do the research of the, of this particular story before I go and because you, you set yourself up maybe to be disappointed. It's the same thing as when you turn on a television show or a movie the less you know, the more you're going to be surprised. And drawn in. And drawn into the story. Yes. Especially if they do a good job. And that's why I have to be careful when talking about intimate apparel, because you don't want to give people too many ideas. One thing I do ask people is, when the curtain opens or the lights come up, mm -hmm. what do they see? Mm -hmm. So when intimate apparel starts, what are people seeing? a vast stage that will encompass four different living areas of the people that Esther has relationships with. You mentioned that you kind of got your start as a soul-trained dancer down in L.A. At that point, did you know you wanted to go into performing, number one? Number two, how does one become a soul-trained dancer? I began performing when I was eight. So by the time I was a soul train dancer, I was already a drama student. I had already done commercials. I'd already been modeling for Sears and for catalogs. And it was pretty clear that Jan is an artist. Jan is a performer. I also painted and I did choreography. I was a dancer and I was a gymnast. I was one of the cheerleaders at my high school, LA High. And the show was being brought to Los Angeles because they were going to use our studios. One of my friends who was a football player, his sister was hired to do the casting and it was only the two of them and she didn't know kids. So she asked Ron to, can you pull some, some friends of yours to come to this audition? He did. And of course you go to the cheerleaders first because they dance. And he says, we're going to have an audition at Queen Anne Park. And my sister's doing this new show. Nobody knew that it was going to be as successful. It was just, you know, a dance show. So Queen Anne Park was a park that we were not supposed to go to. Like if our parents knew that we went there, we would have all been in trouble. So it was a sneak thing. So we, you know, spread the word and met at Queen Anne Park after school. And they had us go into this big room. There were directors and producers and different people that worked on the production standing around. So they put on music, they had us dance, and then they selected couples who danced. And I got selected along with uh, a young man who was a very popular dancer at L.A. His name was Rodney Moss. They pulled some of us there and then asked us if we were interested in being a part of the show. And we were thought, hey, this is fun. They shot it at Fox Studio on Saturdays. And what they did was shot two episodes every Saturday afternoon so we would go and dance our little hearts out. And then we realized that they had these amazing entertainers. So Gladys Knight and the Pips and James Brown and um, Eddie Kendricks and all these wonderful stars were coming. So it gave us as 16 year olds the opportunity to meet and see these entertainers, but also to dance. Now, I was actually brought up in a household. My my stepfather was the um, program manager for KGFJ Radio, and that was the only black radio station in Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s. Well, it's still in existence now. So I was used to being around entertainers. They would come to our house oftentimes, so I knew not to act like a, a fan. Right, yeah. 
and we would just dance. And then I got picked up with Johnson hair care products to do commercials for Soul Train, which turned out to be quite a blessing. I got paid for many, many, many years and put me through college and bought me a car and an apartment. And it was just kind of the beginning of, but I actually went off from high school into the theater department at the university. So when I went to college, I knew that that's what I was going to study. So it had kind of been the trajectory from about eight years old. How many Soul Train shows did you do? Do you remember? I was on the show for the first two years. I was from the original cast. I probably would have danced on it for years after, but my parents were insistent upon college. And so after the first two years, I went off to the university. Did they pay well or was the money basically from the commercials? The money was strictly from the commercials. None of the dancers were paid at all. Really? None of us. Never. They gave us lunch in between the shoots, and that was about it. No gas money, no performance money or anything. And I'm sure American Bandstand was the same way. Dick Clark had his show going, and there were uh, different teenagers, and they did not pay us. No. You came, you danced, you had fun, and you went home. I happened to be blessed because I did commercials and Johnson paid that I had to be a part of AFTRA. So they pay you initially, but then as long as it runs, you also get paid. So that's why I got paid for 15 or 20 years. Was there choreography involved? No, no. they selected the best dancers on campus and they just happened just to luck up. I mean, we had people who did choreography for events at the school People like Stephen Lott, who was an amazing dancer, and Chrissy Thomas, who was my best friend. She was one of the best dancers at school, and she pulled her boyfriend, John Clark, who was also an outstanding dancer. I guess word got out that it was the best dancers that they wanted to use. So, no, there was no choreography. This was back then, way before Me Too. Mm -hmm. And there you are, in L.A., Mm -hmm. With the Harvey Weinsteins and the talk of the casting couch, did you experience any of the horror that a lot of women experience? And by the look on your face, I would say the answer is a very strong yes. I'm surprised that you're asking me this question. Why? My mind went to, like, who did you talk to? How would you know this? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yes, I I won't say the horror, but yeah, yeah, there were some things that that occurred that I wish did not. But to be honest with you, Richard, I never talked about it, and I didn't talk about it until the Kavanaugh hearings. And I was working on a show in San Francisco, and I happened to see the hearings, and they asked that young woman, "Why did you wait so long?" to say anything. And I was insulted as a woman because there are a lot of reasons why people don't tell the story. And so on my way to rehearsal, I started asking myself, Jan, why did you not tell? And I realized, I mean, I broke it down the night that Mr. Cornelius was inappropriate there. He had done a few things and I consider myself blessed and highly favored that I didn't get hurt bad but he did some things that were inappropriate and tried to molest. And it was backstage at the first Soul Train concert. And 
I ran and I got away from him and I went to go get my dance partner or tell my best friend. And when I got to the door, there was a crowd across the street. And one of my very dear friends from high school had been beaten and killed in front of the Palladium. Now, this was 1971. Those kind of things did not happen. And it was not a norm. So it was a big deal. And it was awful. And we actually rode together to that show that night. His name was Robert Ballou and uh, his best friend, Chucky. And they had on leather jackets. And they were beaten in front of the um, Palladium but Bobby was killed. So when this happened, it was so alarming and upsetting. That was not the conversation. And, and so we never did do the dance contest that night. And I don't know if that ever came out in a book or if it came out in a report that the original first dance contest that they did after the year all of the winners throughout the year were supposed to compete on stage right. for a first, second, and third um, place winner. And I was there and my dance partner, who I just talked to for the first time about this incident, I talked to him a month ago and this, we're talking 50 years. And I asked him, where were you? I came for you to help me. And he said he was backstage in the dressing room with the Isley brothers who were going to be the uh, guest act for that night. And uh, he said, Jan, I didn't see you. I didn't know what was going on. I'm so sorry I wasn't there. And I'm like, no. But the answer to why I didn't tell was because our, my friend got killed and that was more important. This sure. was on a Saturday night. So by the time we got to school on Monday, um, that's all anybody talked about. The grief was overwhelming. And I thought that what had happened to me was not nearly as important as what had just happened. So I didn't want to tell my dad because my dad didn't play. I was his only daughter and Don Cornelius would have been eating a bullet. And then my mom would have not been, she would have been not compassionate. I think my, my mom was very rigid and she would have, well, what did you do kind of thing? And so I kept it to myself. I've been married to my husband for 30 years and I never told him until, until just at the Kavanaugh hearings and it came out. And then I happened to be working with an amazing group of women, black women in for colored girls with African-American Shakespeare show. And while we were backstage, I talked to my sisters and I told them what had happened. And I told them I had never, ever spoken about it before. But I felt like I wanted to say something. And I did. And it made me feel better. So I sat down and I wrote it in a journal. Jan Hunter, now you've worked on Intimate Apparel. Two questions. First of all, when the show is running, do you show up with notes or do you kind of go, okay, that's the past? I show up confident that my actors are going to do what we agreed they would be doing. But I must admit, I'm an old school director. It's going to be real hard for me to not sit there and take notes the first and second nights that I see the show. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I'm usually used to being backstage or being in the technical booth and, and putting out fires. But my producer has said to me, no, 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 not this time. You're going to sit down and enjoy it. So I'm going to try and just enjoy it and know that it's all going to come together because there is the magic of theater and I know it's going to work out. 
but I'm going to try not to stress. But it's just habit. I'm just, it's habit. What happens after a show opens and you go, oh, damn, I missed something. I need to tell them to do this, that, or the other thing. Then we meet, we do notes. There's room for tightening up. You know, that's why you do previews. Final question then. Jan Hunter, what have you got coming up? I'm not slated to do another show, but I am a working actress and director. And so the next thing that comes up that I may want to audition for or I may be considered for, I'm open to that. But I don't have another project right now in my pocket. And I am caring for my granddaughter who just had a bone marrow transplant on Friday. So I will be focusing on her healing and just trying to pull my my life back together with some peace and calm and a little rest. You've been listening to an interview with Jan Hunter, director of Intimate Apparel by Lynn Nottage, a production at the Lorraine Hansberry Theater at the Magic Theater in Fort Mason in San Francisco from April 1st through April 16th. For more information, you can go to lhtsf.org. I'm Richard Wolinski on the Bay Area Theater Podcast. <music> ¶¶